Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we ask the big questions about how our political institutions are failing us and what we might do to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Wallner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Well, James, you may have noticed that one of the tropes in American political analysis uh, is the LOL, nothing matters trope, which is to say that all these things are happening and it seems like public opinion doesn't change. Trump gets indicted, his popularity stays the same, maybe even goes up. He's indicted, could be indicted again. Probably nothing will change. COVID, nothing changes. All these things are happening and people are barely budging. So I I think we kind of had this idealized idea about democracy that public opinion should be responsive to events in the world. And in some ways, it's kind of this key idea that underpins our idea of elections as mechanisms of accountability. But it seems that something's kind of broken with that link. Uh, so I'm thrilled to bring on to today's podcast Daniel J. Hopkins, a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania and author of a wonderful new book, Stable Condition, Elites Limited Influence on Healthcare Attitudes. And re- really, this book is an extended case study on the Affordable Care Act a uh, policy that has really been at the center of American partisan conflict for a decade following its enactment. And despite all that's happened, the public's attitudes towards the bill have been remarkably stable. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. I'm excited to talk to you uh, about this new book. Lee, James, thanks so much for having me. All right, Dan. So is this a story of LOL, nothing matters? Or is this a story that actually a lot of things matter, but they kind of cancel each other out? So it looks like nothing matters because there's an equal and opposite reaction for everything that political actors do to try to make things matter. Uh, help us help, help us understand. That's a great question. And I certainly don't think that LOL, nothing matters. But I also think that in a country of more than 330 million people, a country that is as diverse as our country in so many different dimensions, it's maybe not surprising that specific policies, even when they have tangible effects on, you know, say tens of millions of Americans' lives, are not necessarily going to produce uniform effects. And so I think in part, I, I don't think it's that nothing matters, but I also think that the ways in which different policies matter are sufficiently complex and they may matter for specific groups of people in ways that make detecting an overall effect really, really hard. One of the things I've been struck by in a lot of recent political commentary is that those the small number of people who follow Washington DC very, very closely will watch some action, maybe an administrative action taken by the Biden or the Trump administration or some action in Congress, and they'll sit, then turn to public opinion expecting that millions of Americans are going to respond. But the truth is that millions of Americans have other things to do with their time than to closely monitor what's happening in the Senate or the House or executive agencies. And so I think partly, I hope that this book will nudge us towards thinking about the public as a whole, less as the immediate audience for every single meeting and action that happens in Washington, D.C. So political science has all these 
uh, macro level understandings of, of public opinion going some of them posit that the public is highly rational and reasonable in the aggregate uh, but mistakes kind of cancel each other out whereas there are other models that suggest the public is kind of highly irrational and easily persuadable you've got a new model uh, which is the public as absentee parent that's the idea here being that it has an authority it rarely uses and a tendency to punish more than reward so can you can you break that down? for us a little bit and explain how you came to that understanding and what you think other models of public opinion in the, in the aggregate miss or whether maybe something has just changed about American politics. Absolutely. I think in part that the debate about characterizing American public opinion as a whole is in some ways a, a, a stale debate because, again, the American public is made up of millions and millions of people who are going to be deeply knowledgeable on some subject. You know, some people have a lot of knowledge about some specific subject. But as a whole, I think in part, the challenge is that American public opinion was maybe being graded unfairly relative to benchmarks, right? American society is tremendously complicated. And even those of us who spend many years of our lives studying a specific subject may really not know very much about other subjects, right? So you wouldn't look to me if you're thinking about the regulation of large language models like, you know, GPT-3 uh, or, or whatnot. And so in the same way, I think that those political scientists who are quick to doubt the capacity of public opinion to, to make sense of events, I think sometimes undersell the, the, the knowledge that does exist in the American public. One of the things that I try to do in the book is to use open-ended survey questions extensively to get at some of the texture of American public opinion and try to show that the American public did indeed follow the Affordable Care Act and that um, in particular people who were personally affected by different provisions of the Affordable Care Act responded in, in expected ways. So this is not the image of a public that is irrational or um, that is incapable of, of forming coherent views, but at the same time, the public gets to weigh in on politics only once every yeah, at the federal level every two or four years through elections. And it is very, very hard to communicate nuanced thoughts if you can just say R or D, maybe with a certain level of intensity every two to four years. So what I try to do in the book is to reconceive of the public, exactly as you said, as an absentee parent who you know, is off doing other things much of the time, but may come to find two kids fighting you know, furiously and the parent doesn't necessarily have the time or the information to figure out who started this specific fight, right? Who is to blame in this particular case, but the parent can bring retribution. And it's often more along a kind of, you know, fire alarm model where the parent is only going to show up when the yelling and screaming reaches a certain, a certain level. When you have this absentee parent model suggests that the, the parent or the public is away for for a lot of the policy development and so w one consequence that you you know in the book is that it actually gives political elites significant leeway to act within the public's what you call blind spots uh that uh, basically there's just a lot of stuff that the public isn't paying attention to or can't pay attention to so to the extent that these things show up in in public debate they get parsed into partisan 
allegiances. So I'm just going to quote from your book because I think this is a, a good summary of this point. I'll quote, many of the policy decisions that shaped the ACA, even decisions that affected millions of people, took place well outside the public's view and often with little direct public input. Instead, these decisions were typically the products of bargaining and contestation between politicians, interest groups, bureaucrats, lobbyists, lawyers, and judges. Now, I think that's probably been going on for a, a long time in American politics. Maybe it's worse now. Maybe it's not. Uh, but th- there's kind of two ways to think about this. One is to say that this is this is terrible because these kinds of policy decisions, that, as you say, affect millions of people, should be subject to democratic contestation and accountability. But on the other hand, it seems that perhaps the public is not entirely well equipped to uh, kind of consider some of these policy decisions because of all the partisan filters and other forces that are that cancel each other out, which is why public opinion is so stable. So how should we think about this? Is it is it good that this frees up elites to make bet perhaps make better long term policies with more autonomy? Uh, especially once they give up on the illusion that the public is going to care about short term effects? Should should they craft policy with less concern for public opinion, particularly in the short term. If bureaucrats and policymakers read this book, how should they think about public opinion? That's again a great question. And I think in part, it's important to distinguish between the fact of the public's ability to hold politicians accountable and politicians' perceptions about that public ability. And I think that arguably what has changed more in recent decades is politicians' perceptions about whether the public will hold them accountable than the, the public's actual ability to hold politicians accountable, right? I mean, the public has- So politicians are more worried now about that or less? No, worried? I actually think that they're less, I think that, that quite possibly they're less worried. I think that if you look at, say, the period in the run-up to the 1996 presidential election, Bill Clinton came together with his um, Republican counterparts led by Newt Gingrich to pass, for instance, a welfare reform. Both sides were under the perception that they would be punished if they were perceived to be blocking uh, popular legislation. Whereas I think that, you know, if you fast forward a generation, if we watch how the, for instance, the current debt ceiling posturing plays out, both sides uh, seem to think that they can potentially obstruct or otherwise that they that there will not be accountability for not acting in good faith. And I in the book mention an example of this where you know the Trump administration very clearly took steps to try to undercut the Affordable Care Act through executive action. So for example, the Trump administration scaled down the marketing for the exchanges and tried through other um, other procedures and other rulings, and indeed through legislation, to hamper the exchanges. And at the same time, even Republican voters, when when I surveyed them uh, shortly after Trump's election, said that you know a majority of of Republicans wanted the Trump administration to try to make the ACA work rather than to try to undermine the law through essentially um, policymaking sabotage. So I think in part that. The public is able to to hold politicians accountable at the highest level. In part, the ACA is an optimistic story of public opinion because if you look at the ACA, how did it evolve? It evolved such that the individual mandate was dropped from the ACA thanks to Republican legislation at the end of 2017. 
Um, but at the same time, Medicaid expansion, which is popular, has um, successively moved to more and more states, most recently North Carolina. So at the very high level, the ACA is a story of the voters getting what they want. But exactly as, as you quoted, there are so many opportunities at the mezzo level for politicians to make decisions and for, for judges and for regulators to make decisions that may or may not be what the public wants. And so one example I give, in 2014, um, Senator Marco Rubio had included a provision in legislation which prevented the federal government from making risk quarter payments to insurers, uh, which was thought of or called by some as a kind of legislative sabotage, which hampered the ACA's ability to, um, to reimburse insurers. And Senator Rubio could do that in the full knowledge that he would take credit for it in a Republican primary, but that he would not, there weren't many um, swing voters in Florida or elsewhere who were going to you know, personally hold him accountable on the downside for that vote. I'm going to turn it over to James now, who has a bunch of questions for you. Well, thank you for joining us. And I really enjoyed this book. And I, I really enjoyed the the approach that it takes and and getting down into the the details, the nitty gritty, the the dirty stuff of healthcare politics, of politics in general. Too often, I think political scientists, scholars, journalists, everyone, even members and staff, tend to dwell in the macro. And of course, that's not where people live in the macro. They live their day-to-day -day lives with specific experiences. It's very episodic. And so I really welcome this approach. And I also like the focus on the nature of public opinion and how it may matter at certain times rather than others. And I think that's also critical. It's not an either or everything or nothing. And when we think about public opinion, you know, one thing is I'm sitting here and I worked in full disclosure. I was in the Senate at the time of the Affordable Care Act debate uh, and for many years thereafter. And I remember it well, maybe not maybe not positively. I was there up until Christmas Eve in 2009 when we voted on that bill. So it, maybe not even with regard to the policy, but more about just the that was back when we stayed and worked late hours in the Senate. But members use the the public, the people with a capital P, right? They use the people as kind of a weapon, as a cudgel, as leverage in debates. Um, and they do that because they clearly think that it, it has some effect. And when we look at, and, and pardon me for this kind of elongated intro here, but we do that in part because common sense tells us that it does. I mean, we had also on this podcast many, many episodes ago, Omar Wassel and his concept of agenda seating in the civil rights movement. We know that the women's suffrage parade in 1913 and the reaction of, a, of, of hordes of angry and drunk men who ultimately descend upon the women as they were going through creates this media sensation that presents this thing in a different way on the nation's newspapers, which then begins to slowly shift public opinion. We know that public opinion on, say, the question of whether or not you can have a glass of whiskey at the end of the day, ultimately torpedoes the effort to pass uh, suffrage in Ohio, I believe, because it's tied. It's tied to that issue. It comes up in a context that the public opinion is very down on. We know that uh, Dr. King's nonviolent direct action campaign is, is pivotal precisely because of the role 
that the public plays in influencing elites, right? He tells us this, his letter from Birmingham jail. When he leaves Albany, he goes to Birmingham with his children's crusade. We know that it's vital to get the people to pay attention. And if you get them to pay attention, that then destabilizes the kind of status quo forces and and you can overcome them and you can ultimately create a new status quo. And of course, common sense tells us that people inside of Congress, when they encounter a status quo, like the civil rights reformers who were opposed by the chairman of the committees, by the party structures and everyone else, they have to go outside of Congress. They have to tap into the people, the public, and get them to, to push back against um, the status quo. And without that, they can't win. They can't prevail. And so how do I square that kind of view with the central thesis of your book? Wow, a lot there. And I think that a number of your, and I, I will say thanks so much, um, James, for the very kind thoughts about the book. And it's again, just sorry to interrupt. It's a, uh, Listeners, you should read this book. It is a really good book. It is a good book that reminds you about how the healthcare debate unfolded in 2009 and 2010 and the efforts to repeal it afterwards. And it also gives you a better understanding of politics. And not a lot of books these days, especially in political science, do that. So read it. Sorry. No, no. I will welcome interruptions like that any time. And one thing I would say, building on your your observation, is that this book does try to start from the puzzle that those people who were either like you, you know, in the Senate or following the healthcare reform debate closely know that this was an incredible drama. I mean, there were moments of genuine tension when we did not know if John McCain was going to uh, vote to advance um, the the kind of skinny repeal that would have led to some significant repeal of the Affordable Care Act. We didn't know if John Roberts was going to vote to uphold the Affordable Care Act in the 2012 decision. Um, We didn't know if Bart Stupak, who was a Democratic representative, who was holding out, um, uh, trying to argue for um, abortion-related provisions to be added to the ACA, we didn't didn't know if that rebellion was going to be successful. And so there were so many moments of drama. And my point of departure in writing this book was precisely the disconnect between all of this elite level drama and a public that with one important exception was really pretty close to a flat line in terms of its overall views. Now I say overall because, and I think this speaks, uh, James, to one of your important observations, the American public is really dynamic. And I think in part, that we sometimes need to get beyond surveys of American adults or American registered voters if we want to see important undercurrents in American politics. Because it could well be the case that um, there are really important political dynamics that are focused initially among church-going African-Americans or among a set of um, right-to-life activists, for example, or Tea Party activists. And that one of the things that I hope to do in writing this book is to encourage us uh, encourage us not always to have our default be um, that the audience for all political action in the United States is all American voters. Because it could well be that the indictment of a former U.S. president is read very differently by, um, say, lawyers or by certain specific groups in the electorate. And I do think that it's really important then to get beyond overall average public opinion, which is often quite stable and quite reasonable 
if we want to explain some of the critical events of the last tumultuous decade in American politics. And I think the last thing I would say, um, getting back to the question of the, the civil rights movement, is that I think you saw both in the civil rights movement and certainly with respect to healthcare reform, that the question of salience, of just how important an issue it is and how many Americans are thinking about that issue is a really important variable in, in a political system and certainly in our political system. So the Affordable Care Act was arguably the central political question from its passage in 2010, maybe even a little bit before, straight through um, possibly as late as the 2018 midterms and maybe even beyond, right? And so as a high salience issue, the Affordable Care Act looked very different and public opinion on the Affordable Care Act looked different. It was um, quite stable and it was hard, hard for political leaders to influence. Um, and I think in the civil rights era, we saw a very strategic uh, and long-term effort to make issues of race and the denial of, of basic civil rights prominent not just in specific southern communities but nationwide and that that by you know this is quoting Schatzneider who's you know, a prominent political scientist writing back in the 1960s that one of the key moves of the civil rights movement was precisely to change the audience to change who was mobilized and who saw that issue as salient so i do i think entirely that both politics is complicated and i think it's important to um, to have a real role for the public while acknowledging that the public writ large, the, you know, um, well more than 100 million people who cast ballots in presidential elections have only limited influence on their own. But when they organize in specific ways on specific issues, yes, then absolutely they can play a much more both a prominent and a sustained role in influencing the contours of politics. Right. I think the... The civil rights movement, the suffrage movement are very informative here for, for, for lots of reasons, but you're right. I mean, you have to have a sustained effort, but there is still this notion that, that political action can influence and make something more salient. You know, Dr. King draws the short straw. He gets pulled into the Montgomery bus boycott and he brings this new way of approaching things, a new way of doing things that ultimately revolutionizes everything. He creates tension in the mind, he tells us, right? Uh, so to confront people with this with this issue in a way that he sees beneficial to him. And ultimately, and it's remarkable, we have to go back, he doesn't call people evil. He doesn't uh, conduct uh, his politics in moralistic terms, even though he's talking about justice and injustice. The women's suffrage movement, they don't go around calling men chauvinistic pigs, Right. Because they need to persuade men in the political sphere to vote for suffrage, either at the state level or at the national level in the form of a universal suffrage amendment. Similarly, Dr. King recognizes that no amount of civil uh, rights success at the Supreme Court is going to lead to victory on a sustainable basis in the long term because he needs to persuade Southerners, white Southerners, that he is right and that Jim Crow segregation is wrong. That's politics. And he has to therefore engage in politics. And so I guess my next question is, was the failure of elites, was the failure of Democrats and Republicans to influence public opinion during the Affordable Care Act debate over the Obamacare debate, was that a function of their not trying? And to, to maybe put it differently, you know, to what extent does the way a debate unfold impact the influence or the potential of the public to have 
uh, an effect on it. Because we mentioned Schottschneider. It seems to me, going back to my days in the Affordable Care Act debate, and yes, there is this rhetoric on one level, but on the other level, we look at the Senate debate. Every single day we would come in, the Democrats and Republicans would both negotiate with McConnell and Reid at the time, who was the majority leader, a unanimous consent agreement. And they would have two votes, one on a Republican amendment, one on a Democratic amendment. Both votes would be set at 60. It was all very orderly and it was all designed to fail. And it was designed to preserve the Democrats' coalition to support the bill in the end and to get Republicans to all vote against it in the end. That was only disrupted once when I think Lautenberg offered a uh, drug reimportation amendment. It took them like three days to figure out how to get out of that. But there was no real sustained effort to kind of divide those coalitions. There was no real effort like we saw in 2007 with comprehensive immigration reform to, to disrupt the dominant uh, coalition and to ultimately divide it so that you could win instead. We didn't see that. In fact, the two parties did not present starkly opposing viewpoints, even after the law goes into effect. Repeal gets replaced with repeal and replace. Replace becomes this nebulous thing nobody talks about. And then behind closed doors, it looks like everybody supports the law. And so I'm not sure there was ever a sustained like presentation of an alternative in this environment. And so without that alternative, can the public really kind of, you know, key into this and to ultimately we see it shift in different ways? There's a lot there. And I think one place that I would start is to point to your use of the word sustained in a couple of places, because, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and many, many civil rights organizers were aware that they were not, yes, trying to reshape Southern pu public opinion and the public opinion of, of Southern white people, among many others, um, but that also they were playing a long game. And I think one of the things that I try to do in the book, particularly in, in the, the chapter about racial attitudes and in the chapter about framing, is to provide one way in which I do think that political elites, political leaders, and that, that rhetoric really does matter, which is that we use certain narratives to make sense of this highly complicated world. And we will return to those narratives time and time again. One quotation that I love to point to is a quotation about the dangers of socialized medicine, which sounds to many modern ears like it came from the Affordable Care Act debate, but actually was the president of the American Medical Association in the 1960s arguing against uh, the creation of, I forget if it was Medicare or Medicaid, but arguing that socialized medicine posed a real risk. And so there are certain frames, certain ways that we think about these problems that are durable and that last sometimes not just from, you know, election to election, but indeed from generation to generation that we, we have debates about whether people who make use of, say, a means tested benefit are deserving. Those are debates that America has had in different variants for decades. And so I do think that one long term channel uh, through which both political elites and sometimes activists, sometimes faith leaders and others can influence the direction of our politics in the long term, as did Martin Luther King Jr. and many others, is by reframing, by offering new narratives, or by taking older narratives and saying, we need to reconceive of this. We need to rethink what equality means to be more inclusive in racial or ethnic terms, right? So I partly do think that the organizational environment of American politics has changed in meaningful ways. And so I would point to the fact that if your 
what, who you're, the audience that you're playing to is, for instance, the American Medical Association. They obviously have lots of long-term interest in healthcare, and day after day, their, you know, their leadership and their lobbyists are going to be present watching what's ha happening on Capitol Hill. But in a world where um, it's less driven by interest groups, not, you know, obviously there were a lot of interest groups involved in the Affordable Care Act, but in a world where you also have energized, mobilized activists who you, whose attention you need to maintain through whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or whatnot, we may not quite have the same dense interest group infrastructure that can keep the political system focused on problems in a sustained way. And I think that's part of the story of the Affordable Care Act is that as we see um, you know, the, the political decline of, say, unions, um, it becomes harder for our political system to, to really sustain a focus on, on specific policy issues for sometimes the decades it takes to get the policy right, and certainly the years it takes. I would say that the Democrats and Republicans, though there are a lot of arguments about the, and here I very much, you know, James, defer to your, to your expertise and knowledge and experience. Um, but I would say that the Republican caucus voted, you know, the Affordable Care Act um, passed the House with what, initially maybe one um, Republican vote, which later on, on final passage, there were no Republican votes. Olympia Snow voted for part of the legislation that became the Affordable Care Act in committee, but not famously, you know, not on the floor. So I do think that the, the two parties did present um, two different positions in that the Democrats were in favor and the Republicans were opposed. Now, the Republicans, you know, in American politics, playing defense is often a good position to be in, in that you don't have to specify what your alternative is. And you can argue that you will repeal and then replace the ACA with something that accomplishes its goals without its costs. And I think then the um, Republicans experience trying to pass uh, the America Health Care Act in 2017, trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, showed that, you know, you can take a rhetorical stance for repeal, but when push comes to shove, writing down what the next healthcare system should look like is a very different task. And I would say you know, one of the things that I do find in the book, the one real source of profound movement in public opinion was in favor of the Affordable Care Act once the law was, was really tangibly threatened. And Lee, before I'm going to turn it back over to you, but I just wanted to pick up on this last point. I think what, what we saw during the Affordable Care Act debate was essentially Republicans trying to defeat the law by engaging in this uh, a mode of like abstract negation. They weren't, they didn't present, there was no, um, there wasn't a significantly different policy. And when you pressed them on the specifics, you have Chuck Grassley on Face the Nation saying, what's the big deal with an affordable mandate, you know, with the uh, individual mandate. You have individual components of the bill that Republicans are very, very resistant for the most part to come out in a post. So they engage in these like, you know, this idea of socialistic medicine and death panels and, and all of these things. And, I, and so when you actually see it shift, when you see them shift to trying to repeal it, it becomes, I think, very obvious how insufficient their kind of position is because they, they fail and quite dramatically, I mean, significantly, as you, as you suggest. And it's, I think, directly linked to the fact that they were not 
convinced wholly of any kind of alternative policy. It was almost like it was just spin. It was just them engaging in spin because they thought it would be good for their party in the end. But there's no real substance there. And if there is any substance, it's pretty much in agreement with the Democrats. You know, that's what at least that's what we saw behind closed doors. Yeah. So one of the real challenges here is that the Republican Party found that running on Affordable Care Act repeal was a really good message, right? It helped unify different elements of the GOP's base. And so running on repealing the Affordable Care Act was something that Republicans did very effectively, especially in 2010 and in 2014. So my memory is that um, in both elections, a plurality of Republican campaign ads were about repealing the Affordable Care Act. And I think one of the challenges, precisely as you say, James, is that the Republican Party had committed in, in multiple elections to the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And then, you know, like the dog that, that catches the car, uh, found itself in 2017 in a position to actually repeal the Affordable Care Act, but then had to unpack the very, very, very messy compromise, which was the Affordable Care Act, because the American healthcare system is tremendously complicated. And all of these pieces are, you know, the the different pieces about, say, mandating that people have insurance or subsidizing insurance, they're all related. And I I entirely agree. I think that um, the Republican Party, until the 2016 election, had the luxury of being able to to, um, run on repealing the Affordable Care Act, even though that wasn't really an effective position after the act had been passed and certainly after the Supreme Court rules in 2012 that it is constitutional. So I have two more questions for you, Dan. One is about political science and the other is about the popularism debate. And you'll see how they connect in a second. So this book in many ways reminds me of a kind of older generation of political science books that were much more holistic and big picture in their view, even though this is focused on one particular policy, it's a much more 360 view of how politics works and how there are all these different forces that interact with each other and put pressure on each other. And it seems to me that that you're pretty clear in this book in saying that uh, you're you're trying to 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 actually do something to get us to think differently about how political science operates and and the types and the way it approaches these questions that we have a lot of papers and even even a lot of books that kind of take this i have one explanation and one causal theory that I'm going to test. And I'm not going to view politics as a complex, interactive, dynamic system that plays out over a long time. I'm just going to have, particularly in, in academic journal articles, I'm just going to have one one, one theory and essentially one independent variable and one dependent variable. And so it kind of leads to this one weird trick to explain politics uh, approach, uh, which is very easy to then popularize and say, oh, this is this is what explains politics or this is what explains politics. It's all about race or it's all about hyperpartisanship or it's all about lobbying and money and politics. But it seems like what you're doing with this book, and it's the, the first book I've, I've seen like this really in the current generation. I mean, there are a lot of books like this from an older generation of political science. But to, to say, you know, 
seems like what you're saying is maybe we've gone too far in this trying to find one causal story uh, to explain things. And we need to go back to a more holistic, almost complex system view of, of politics. So am I, am I over-interpreting here and just, and just putting my own view of political science in, into your mouth? So that's a, that's a great and thought-provoking set of questions. And I would put it less as we need to go back to an older kind of political science and more that I think, I think that thinking about how the different elements of a political system interact is the next logical step. So partly, Lee, in your question, you're alluding to a set of developments where political science, like economics, like psychology, like sociology, um, has become more um, methodologically rigorous, and in particular has become much more attentive to what's a causal effect. And borrowing from models in medicine, we now think a lot about a causal effect as being you know, what is the impact of a specific intervention that happened at a single point in time? And I think that that way of thinking has led to a tremendous um, enhancement in the rigor of our scholarship and in our ability to say that we think, you know, political rhetoric can, you know, cause these effects, but maybe not those effects, right? But I do think that then we wind up with a whole set of individual studies of this specific feature of the ACA or the ACA debate or the immigration policy debate. And one of the next steps, and this is why I see it as moving forward rather than backwards, now that we have all of these you know, estimated effect sizes, now that we can say with some precision, we think that if a state implements the Medicaid expansion, that low-income residents of that state are gonna become three to five percentage points more favorable towards the Affordable Care Act. Now that we have that level of precision, I think the next step is to start to integrate these studies and to say, okay, if we know this is the effect of the Medicaid expansion, this is the effect of the individual mandate, this is the effect of getting subsidies, now we can start to think about what does it all add up to? And as you stated earlier, sometimes it adds up to less, it's less than the sum of its parts because a lot of these different effects are working across purposes. Um, so, I do think that political science, having taken great strides to, to be more credible in saying that this specific cause leads to this specific effect, I do think that one of the next steps is now to aggregate across to say, okay, we believe, we have good reason to think that you know, the Medicaid expansion has an effect on public opinion, but is it politically meaningful? And not just to say, yes, there is an effect or no, there's not, but what's the size of that effect? How durable is that effect? And so what what political implications does it have? Right. So what you're what you're that's a, a fair corrective. What, what I meant by the older, uh, although the older style of political science was less rigorous, it was it was more holistic, uh, I think, in its in its theory building and, and the way it connected a lot of different pieces. So I, I think that's a good way of framing things that now we can start to integrate a bunch of different insights and think of politics more as a bunch of interacting forces and more as something that develops and changes over time. But on the causal inference, one weird trick to win elections question, it, it does seem like that kind of thinking is quite dominant, particularly in democratic party strategic advice circles, which is to say that 
where you can run a bunch of polls and you know, find that some some way you talk about an issue boosts public opinion by five percent. But what you were saying before about this short game versus long game that, you know, what what's really interesting in politics is the way in which the agenda changes through the concentrated efforts of interest groups and, and political leaders and that that's where the real action is in broader political development. And by focusing so much on these aggregate polling effects among particular marginal groups or how you increase support for democratic policies or hurt democratic policies, it's kind of missing the big picture of what politics is actually about, which is actually passing policies that improve people's lives. Yeah, I think that one of the challenges is in a highly, highly polarized era like our era today, when even if most Americans don't pay close attention to politics, there are still millions of us who do pay very close attention to politics. And in that kind of, in an era in which, you know, control of the House of Representatives may hinge on four seats, um, both parties have a strong incentive to try to, you know, win as many seats as they can. And importantly, factions within the political parties recast their arguments as being about, as being good politics, right? So we get less an argument about the merits of, say, Medicare for all, though there was some of that in 2020, and more an argument about, is this, is this politically good or bad? Will this yield votes or not? And I think one of my goals in this book is to say that the policymaking process in, is incredibly important. There are millions of lives that are affected by the policies that we as a country do or don't enact, um, but that we should evaluate policies as policies first and foremost, and not try to argue for policies through some backdoor public opinion channel, um, which is likely to be small or to be canceled out. So you mentioned um, popularism, and I do think that one of the lessons of this book is that when parties pass unpopular legislation, and particularly when the other party then focuses on that unpopular legislation, um, there are costs, you know, there are electoral costs to that, that the public um, has a significant status quo bias. And that um, I think if to the extent that there is one weird trick, it is to avoid pissing off large numbers of voters, which seems utterly obvious when stated like that. Um, but I think I do think that um, in a country as as diverse and as fragmented as ours, one of the key points about policymaking is that it's going to be complex, it's going to be incremental, and we shouldn't expect it then to transform public opinion. And so I think the challenge is that in in an era in which the two parties are very very evenly matched, neither party can expect through the passage of any one bit of legislation to reconfigure politics for the long term, right? If we think back to, you know, George W. Bush's first term, um, you know, the, the Republicans oversaw the passage of um, the, um, you know, Medicare prescription drug expansion. And, you know, that, that may have helped um, George W. Bush win reelection and be the last Republican to win a majority of the popular vote. Um, but, you know, it certainly didn't lead to a long term, you know, it didn't make it impossible for the Democrats to retake 
the House of Representatives just two years later or to win the presidency two years after that. So th- this this fits uh, very much with uh, the the uh, sides Sasanovich Vavrich idea of calcified politics that we're stuck in this moment in which everything is just kind of evenly balanced. And uh, you know, I'm I'm curious whether you see that changing anytime soon, or or are we in this era in which, despite lots of things happening below the surface? That at the the observed surface of politics, everything is just going to continue to be equally balanced and opposed for for the foreseeable future. Well, I certainly think that the Inflation Reduction Act and the Biden era expansive spending and fiscal policy has not generated the same kind of sustained grassroots level opposition um, that we saw with the Affordable Care Act. And I do think then the, you know, the Affordable Care Act was the central vehicle for battles between Republicans and Democrats in campaign after campaign after campaign, right? 2010, then 2012, then 2014. Um, it was the central focus, obviously, of the Obama administration. And then it was how the Trump administration chose to use its initial political capital. This was the, the first project, the first legislative project that the Republicans undertook. Um, after they had, um, you know, a trifecta for the first time in a decade to try to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Now, um, certainly the Inflation Reduction Act has been met with skepticism, criticism, and opposition from, from many Republicans. But we haven't seen as of yet the sustained, mobilized kind of opposition. And I, I will be surprised, if, you know, we didn't see the Inflation Reduction Act starring in that many negative advertisements in 2022. Um, and we can see, but it may well not become the same kind of focal point for American political competition um, for years to come. And so in that way, I would caution us against overreading the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act was a very specific situation in which both parties, the Democrats were locked into it, the Republicans found electoral advantage from focusing on it. So both parties really focused on that specific fight for, for years. And I think that I certainly don't trust my ability to predict well into the future, um, but you can imagine that we, we've seen some level of bipartisan lawmaking in the past couple of years. Obviously, we will see how the debt ceiling plays out. But it is possible that the ACA was a, was a particular political moment led to that sort of all R's versus all D's kind of environment that, that persisted for years. Right. Well, one of the things, actually, when you pointed out, it, it's quite remarkable how little the Inflation Reduction Act featured in the 2022 midterms and how little it's likely to feature in the upcoming 2024 election. And in many ways, what what the elections are about are these kind of abstract threats uh, of either wokeism and CRT on the Republican side or authoritarianism and illiberalism on the, the Democratic side. So it's almost like we, we don't have elections that are about policy at all. And the the parties are 
arguing about totally different things. It's not like we're having a shared argument about whether the government should have a larger role in, in healthcare or not. We're having arguments about perceived threats and the, the soul of the nation, which is quite different. And that seems like, like, like that is very much like Civil War era territory when we're arguing over the soul of the nation. And we should long for the days when we were arguing over health care. So one thing I would say is that, yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act um, played a surprisingly limited role, both in Republican messaging, but also in Democratic messaging. If you think more generally, I mean, the Biden administration spent you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars, and many of the constituencies that the Democrats surprisingly managed to hang on to in 2022 were less some of the core recipients of, um, of federal spending and more um, potentially to some degree, you know, um, more, more affluent or more, more suburban constituencies. And so I think, I do think that the, the study, by studying the Affordable Care Act, one of the things that we see is that you buying votes with policy is not a particularly effective political strategy in this environment, right? That, um, that simply because you enact, even if you enact a policy that to paraphrase um, Joe Biden's a big freaking deal, um, even, even, you know, providing healthcare or access to healthcare for people um, that may effectively raise their family income by 15 or 20%, even that kind of intervention doesn't consistently move politics in a, in a big way. It suggests that neither political party is going to break this logjam with some, you know, just pass this one, you know, one piece of legislation that, that the ability to refashion American political coalitions and potentially to see us out of a period of pitched polarization and hyper competition, you know, you, we're not going to do it through legislation alone, or at least certainly not the kind of legislation that we've seen passing in, in recent decades. So yeah, I would, I would certainly say, I think the contrast between the ACA and the, and the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden era spending more generally is instructive, but I think we see some of the same lessons in that we do see first off that the federal government can spend billions of dollars without meaningfully altering, say, the geography of political support in this country. Yeah, and, and that's and that's quite remarkable, I think. And it does seem to question a, a lot of the received wisdom uh, that goes on and passes for punditry in this country. So thank you for shedding some much needed evidence and thought and holistic big picture thinking on the relationship between public policy uh, and politics more broadly. Uh, it's a great book, Dan. Congratulations. And we were excited to have you on to talk about it. This has been another episode of Politics in Question, and we'll be back with you again in hopefully the same stable condition. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.